tonight we return to the book of Jeremiah. I'm looking to play a bit of catch-up to bring us up to where we were prior to the break we took some months ago, and uh, hopefully to make a bit of progress as well this evening. Uh, Last time we were in Jeremiah, I gave you something of a reintroduction to the book, something of a bit of an outline, a bit of a review. It's not an easy book. I've said that before. It's not an easy book because of, in large measure, um, we're not given the kind of clarity of outline that a lot of the other books have, particularly with respect to uh, being able to weigh just when in the Israel's history this portion of Scripture is referring to. Um, Jeremiah is not chronological. <laughs> he doesn't, uh, though, you know, he, he tells us that uh, uh, the word of the Lord came to him in the days of uh, Josiah, the king of Judah, which is the, um, uh, the late uh, uh, 7th century. Um, and then in the reign of um, his son Zedekiah, and uh, I'm sorry, Jehoiakim first, and then Zedekiah, uh, which brings us up to the time of the Babylonian captivity. Zedekiah being the last of uh, the Davidic kings, so that's in the you know the sixth century BC, 586 BC. Um, but exactly where, for instance, chapter two fits in. Uh, to that time frame, uh, we don't know. There are people that say, well, this is early on in Jeremiah's ministry. This is being spoken in the days of Josiah. We don't know that. It may be, but uh, there are no time signals that are given. You know, Ezekiel was a book that gave you all these clear-cut time frames. Um, Five years after we were taken into captivity, the word of the Lord came, and this occurred, and 20 years after this event took place. Uh, We don't have that in this portion. Um, and so that's a question what uh, is being spoken of here in terms of the period of Israel's history I rather think that lack of chronology probably should bring us to think more of thematic outline that the way we should look at the book has to do with the themes that Jeremiah is dealing with and as I mentioned this first uh, section of the book the first 25 chapters really has to do with the dismantling of all of the institutions of the nation that the people possessed as being the covenant people of God being in this intimate relationship with uh, with their God now they had apostatized from him they had rebelled against him and as a result of their sin uh, they're being cut off and they're being cut off from all that once they had as their possessions the temple is now going to be destroyed that's going to be taken away from them Uh, the covenant relationship is going to be taken away from them they're being able to pride themselves we're the elect of God is going to be taken away from them Um, the intimacy with God uh, the kingship of David that's all going to be taken away from them and so we have this dismantling of all these institutions as uh, God tells Jeremiah his work is to be uh, to overthrow and to pluck up and to break down and to destroy and indeed all this aspect of destruction is going to take place and it's almost as if when chapter 2 begins and God says or Jeremiah says the word of the Lord came to me saying go proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem thus says Yahweh that what this portion of scripture is designed to do is to justify everything that comes after this how is it that it's right that God is going to 
bring the temple to its end? How is it that God is going to allow the nation to be taken into captivity? How is it that he's going to allow all this to be dismantled? The people will profess their innocence of any crime. We've done no wrong. We're not guilty of any apostasy or idolatry or anything that this prophet Jeremiah is claiming. In fact, we are in proper relationship to Yahweh. We have the temple. As long as the temple's there, everything's fine. And they make all of their arguments. And what Jeremiah is given to do in this passage is to bring God's argument. Is to bring God's charges against them. He's the he's the covenant attorney, bringing the case for the prosecution. Uh, why the peop- why God is just? Why the nation is wrong? Why their sins have brought them to this place where this overturning of of all their norms are, are, is going to take place? Uh, the people have been wicked, and they have deserved what is about to come. This is not coming uh, without cause. This is coming because of the clear-cut rebellion of the nation against the Lord. And in the opening parts of this, in chapter 2, really through the chapter into chapter 3, there is something of the picture of um, the nation of Israel in relationship to God um, sinning in such a way that God's marriage covenant with them his marital commitment to them his taking them as his bride is now been sullied by the fact that they've become promiscuous they've turned from God and they've sought out other gods they have given themselves over to a kind of uh, pursuit of other things taking the place of the living God and you know the picture is that this relationship God had with Israel when he brought uh, them to himself it started out almost idyllic Uh, there was a happy joyful promising prospective relationship in which everything just seemed so promising and God says I remember maybe you forgot but I remember the devotion of your youth your love as a bride how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to Yahweh, the first fruits of his harvest, and all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. I brought you out of disaster. I brought you out of Egyptian bondage. I've made you my people. I've betrothed you to myself. I've taken you as my wife. And there's been, at least initially, something of a clear-cut response on their part of genuine devotion to the Lord. Now, I rather think, you remember I've back in ways, that I don't think this was the description of what happened just after the Exodus. It seems to me after the Exodus, the people were not devout. There was no devotion of their youth. There was grumbling. There was murmuring. There was complaining. There was all kinds of unhappiness about being brought out of Egypt and the longing to return. And they were about to pick up stakes and return on numerous occasions. They didn't have food. They didn't have water. They didn't have uh, the things they thought were essential. And they couldn't trust the God of the Exodus, the God who brought plagues upon the Egyptians and opened up the sea for them to pass through on dry land that he would make provision for them, even though he came in with the miracle of the manna. The, the lesson of learning, commitment to the Lord and devoutness before the Lord, devotion and obedience and submission, it didn't come right away. This is the generation of the golden calf. This is the generation of the failure to go up into the land. 
But what God did to that generation is he said, they're not going to enter into the land. They're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And it's that wilderness scene. It's that wilderness picture. You followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Um, He goes and he speaks in terms of... um, uh, they did not say in verse 6 where is Yahweh who brought us up from the land of Egypt and who led us in the wilderness and is in a land of deserts and pits in a land of drought and deep darkness in a land that none passes through where no man dwells uh, that's the picture of the 40 year wanderings and so it's from the perspective of the book of Deuteronomy remember I trying to point out that Deuteronomy is really central to Jeremiah's understanding. And so he's looking at the second generation, the generation that actually went into the land of promise. And that and coming into the land of promise, there was great optimism. There was great hope. This, this is a nation that learned to follow God. They learned to follow him in the pillar of cloud uh, by day, in the pillar of fire by night. They learned to trust him. Uh, they stopped testing him. They learned that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. They learned to worship the Lord their God and him only to serve. In the wilderness, they learned those lessons. And so they were a people ready to enter into the promised land. But what occurred? Verse 7 says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Again, it's when they came into the land. And you remember, they initially began to do the will of the Lord and looking to carry out their battles against the Canaanites and to subdue them and to take the land. But soon they grew weary of that and they just allowed them and permitted them to remain and uh, they never fully eradicated the presence of these uh, idolaters against whom the land itself was going to vomit them out is the picture of the book of Leviticus uh, gives to us. Um, and they got content. They were able to take houses that were not their own and uh, fields that they didn't plant and uh, eat the good of the land and the fruit of the land, this land flowing with milk and honey. And they got really sloppy about devotion to the Lord. They forgot his worship. They forgot his service. They forgot the path of obedience. And so again and again and again, you know, you read about it in the book of Judges, how they're always going after other gods. And they're forsaking the way of the Lord. And God has to bring uh, enemy nations or heathen nations to bring them into captivity until they cry uncle and cry out for a savior. And God raises up the deliverer and brings a judge about. But even those judges began to go from bad to worse. They were just not really very good. Uh, I guess uh, Deborah was the cream of the crop. And then you move into really problematic people. And everybody doing what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in the land. David's raised up as the ideal king. But now think of it, from that generation on, David was the best of the lot. And he was, in some ways, not at all the ideal king. I got into a discussion with this with Pastor Nichols this week, and you know, one of the things he said to me is, if, if, if David is a type of the Messiah, um, how come he was so flawed? And I said, well, because the... The, the, the type is, is not the genuine thing. The, the, the true is, is, is not the, the, the type. The, the, the type is always going to pale in comparison, or else you don't need the true. 
you'll be resting in the type that's flawed, the flawed type, and not look to the fulfillment of the type and the fulfillment of the promises that ultimately would come in Jesus. And so you're, you're expecting greater things. Uh, you're not resting content in what came in David and hearkening back to that as if that was the, the good old days. I mean, there were good old days compared to the later kings of Judah that followed, but these were not really very good kings, and they led the people astray. And they were, many of them, unbelieving, and many of them um, just continued this path of apostasy and rebellion. The leaders just didn't do what they were called upon to do. Verse 8, the priests did not say, where is Yahweh? Those who handled the law did not know me, the scribes. The shepherds, likely the kings, shepherds were kings of the people. They transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. So the leaders just failed. And the people never rose above this bad leadership that was exhibited by the people in positions of leadership who didn't do their job, didn't do what they were called upon to do. And God says, therefore I will contend with you. I have my charges against you. The prosecution is clear in the guilt of the accused. You are accused of these crimes and you're guilty of them. And with your children's children I will contend. Because this is not getting better. Just because new generations are going to come about. They're really going from bad to worse. And then the Lord says, look at the nations of the world. Cross to the coast of Cyprus and see. Send to Keter and examine with care. Go west, go east. See if there's such a thing. In any of the other nations of the world, uh, has nations just changed their gods willy-nilly? Even though they are no gods, they worship nothings. They worship really no gods, but yet they worship their gods with intensity. They worship their gods with a zeal that will be unrelenting. They won't give up their gods. They will not exchange their gods. That's one of the problems in Christian mission work, is that nations are very much attached to their idols. Be appalled at this. Be shocked, God says. Calls upon the heavens to be appalled and to be shocked. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've viewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So they're guilty of, on the one hand, apostasy, forsaking the Lord, and then, you know, nature doesn't, pours a vacuum as it were, there's going to be a religious something you substitute when you leave the God who is living and true, who is the fountain of living waters, and what they went after was useless cisterns that could hold no water, these useless gods these useless idols, these useless bales that could do them no good, and in so doing they came back under servitude under slavery he asked the question, is Israel a slave in verse 14? Now, Israel shouldn't be a slave. They were delivered from servitude. They were delivered from slavery by God's own mighty hand. Why then have they become a prey? Why is it they're now under dominion of the nations in their empires? That's what the lions are that roar in verse 14. The lions that roared against them, that have roared loudly 
That's the lion of um, Egypt and the lion of Assyria and the lion of Babylon. These uh, nations and their empires warring against the people of God and making their land a waste. Their cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Now from the time really of the Assyrian Empire, Israel was never a free people again. Even though in the time of, uh, remember Hezekiah? Now Hezekiah did a couple of things. Some things, some things the Bible tells us about. The other things you got to go to the temple or the house of Sennacherib uh, that was dug up, I guess, I don't know, 100 years ago or so. And Sennacherib in his house had kind of a museum which had rooms in which he would have pictures of his own triumphs and one of the things that he did was he showed something the bible refers to and that is the siege of Lachish that's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 36 because uh, the Rabshakeh or I'm sorry Sennacherib comes from Lachish and they came from Lachish because Hezekiah said I'm done with paying tribute to the Assyrians and that's what you learned about in Sennacherib's house, is that they wouldn't pay tribute. They said, enough of this. We're not going to be under the, the thumb of the Assyrians. And so Sennacherib comes, or the armies come, and Lachish is taken, Lachish is defeated, and that's where a great arsenal of the, of the nation of Judah was, was housed. And so then when they come to, this, to the gates of Jerusalem, it's almost as if Hezekiah is defenseless, except he has one thing on his side. The God who is living and true. And he takes the threats at the hands of, the, of Sennacherib and, and the Rabshakeh, and he brings it before the Lord in his temple. And God brings about that great deliverance. But though there was the overthrow of that army that came looking to destroy um, Hezekiah's kingdom and looking to um, breach the walls of Jerusalem, don't think that they were. Un, not any longer under tribute to the Assyrians. They remained under tribute to the Assyrians. In the time of uh, Josiah, in the time of Jeremiah's prophecies, Assyria is beginning to lose its power, losing its authority. I think that's one of the reasons that uh, 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 Josiah entered into international politics and tried to go to war against the Egyptians, and he ultimately got killed in the pursuit of it. But there was an overturning of the power equation in the Middle East. But the point is, Israel was always under some empire or another. And God says, you can't be looking to these nations to be your helper, to be your deliverer. They operate in self-interest, not in your interest. They're not concerned about Judah. They're not concerned about Yahweh's bride as Yahweh was concerned about his bride. They were concerned to extend love to them. And so he asked the question in verse 18, Now what do you gain by going to Egypt? What do you gain by entering into an alliance with the Egyptians to drink the waters of the Nile? What do you, what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Um, they're not going to help you. Your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. In verse 19, know and see it's an evil and bitter thing for you to forsake Yahweh your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares Yahweh God of hosts. So you see the problem. The problem is they apostatized, they went after other gods, and they went after other gods who were the gods of other nations thinking these other nations would be the key of their liberation. 
but really they were placed back under servitude again and again and again. The only freedom is the freedom that Yahweh himself provides and he gives uh, to a captive people. God says, um, you broke your yoke. I know the ESV says long ago, I broke your yoke. But it's actually the people that free themselves from the yoke of the Lord. Remember, Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. God does place a yoke upon his people that we will serve him. He is the God to be served. But they've declared, I will not serve. And what they did is they became, again, spiritually adulterous, promiscuous, under every high hill, under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. I planted you a choice vine, holy, of pure seed, verse 21. And how then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap and stain of your guilt is still before me. So the accusations come again and again and again. And I'm just going through this rather briefly. Because we've looked at all these things before. I just want to sort of play catch up this evening. And then we'll make a little bit of progress to the end of the chapter, I would hope. Um, you can't, and one of the problems is this is a nation in denial. This is a nation that's not owning up to the reality of these charges that Jeremiah is bringing against them. They were looking to excuse themselves and declare their own innocence. And and the argument is, how can you say you're not unclean? How can you say, I've not gone after the Baals? That's what they were asserting. They were asserting in the face of the clear evidence, the clear evidence that God presents before them that we're guiltless of these accusations that Jeremiah is bringing against us. And they're going to see that again and again and again. They're always declaring their innocence. They're saying Jeremiah is overreacting. Jeremiah is bringing bad news when there's really much good news that he's overlooking and he's simply not seeing. And Jeremiah just says, wake up. Look at your way in the valley. Look at how you are living. Look at what you are doing. You're out of control. You're like an animal in heat. You're not be able to restrain your lust. You're simply going after your own desires. And you're coming to the place of hopelessness. End of verse 25. You said it's hopeless. I've loved foreigners and after them I will go. There's no stopping us. There's no restraint. Own up to it. Wake up to it. Realize what's happening here. Don't go into denial mode and just say it's not true. It is true. And you have to quit putting a a, a nice veneer over this corruption. And so often that's how it is. I mean, we tend, the old old statement, uh, I think it was Robert Burns, the poet, in the the Scottish way of saying things, um, I'm probably not going to even get this right. Um, Oh, the gift, the grace to give us to see ourselves as others see us. You know, you can't really see yourself the way others see you. And certainly you don't see yourself the way that God sees you. We tend to lie to ourselves and we minimize the, the fault and the blame and the, the, the evil and we accentuate what we think are the good things and the positive things and the hopeful things. And, and most often we are just simply self-deceived. And we need the Lord just to rip off the mask of self-deception, enabling us to see ourselves as we really are. He says you're like a thief shamed when you've been caught. 
So the house of Israel, verse 26, shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, their prophets. These who say, and, he, and, he, and he, you know, you may say he's going to an, ex, an excessive statement of their sins. But this is really what they're doing. They call it something different, but they're bound before these totems, these trees, these uh, creations of, of wood that they bow before. And they say to a tree, you are my father, to a stone, you gave me birth. They've turned their back to me and not their face. And in a time of trouble, they say, arise and save us. They call upon the Lord in an emergency. But God says, where are your gods that you've made for yourselves? Let them arise. If they can save you in your time of trouble, for as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. These are great statements of the sins of the people, unmasking their almost infinite ability to, to varnish everything over and make it as if all their crimes and transgressions were no big deal. And here the prophet comes and he is affirming the reality of what they are doing. And here's the point. God's contending with them, but they're turning it around and looking to contend with the Lord. And he asks the question in 29, why do you contend with me? The fault's not in God. The fault's not in God's servant. You have transgressed against me, declares Yahweh. The Lord's not broken faith with them. He's not been unfaithful to them. They've been unfaithful to him. And all that God has done to seek to woo them back, to seek to bring them back, at least at this point, has been unavailing. He says, in vain I have struck your children. It's an argument we find in the book of Isaiah where God says, um, well, I strike you again and again and again. I've beaten you silly. I, I brought chastisement after chastisement after chastisement to the place where the, from the top of the head to the sole of your feet, there's no, nothing but wounds, nothing but wounds. I've beaten you silly. And yet you've not turned, you've not repented, you've not sought my healing, you've not sought the grace and light and truth and, and um, help that comes only from me. Instead, your own sword has devoured your prophets like a rev- ravening lion. You, you've, you've just played the game of the oppressors. You've just been doing that which the oppressors are doing. They're the lions. They're devouring you and you're turning around looking to devour the weak. And that's where he moves into the fact that their devouring of the weak led them to become oppressors of others. The nation's that oppressed them were harsh and unrelenting and put them under tribute that they had to pay these outrageous taxes in order not to have the armies of the Assyrians or later the Babylonians uh, come against them. Although in Babylon, of course, they were taken into captivity, but they were always under the dominion and authority of these other nations. And they turned around and they themselves became oppressors. Verse 34 is the passage that most highlights this, where the Lord says, Also, on top of everything else, on top of all that you've done and all the blindness and, and wickedness of your ways. Now, there's one other thing is that uh, becoming wicked themselves, they taught wickedness to others. That's before you get to 34. Look at 33. 
How well you direct your course to seek love. You're seeking after lovers in every other place than the God who truly loves you and truly has your best interest at heart so that even to wicked women you've taught your ways. So you've taught your own evil ways to others and you've made them, as I guess Jesus said twice, the sons of hell that you are. You've used compass sea and land to make a proselyte. You want others to become as evil as you have been. And also on your skirts, he says, is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You've taken advantage of the poor, the guiltless poor, the people that uh, have no other crime but that they're weak and defenseless and you've taken advantage of them and you've oppressed them and you've used your power over them to grind the face of the poor, I think is what one of the other prophets have said. Um, and he says, You're not, they're not guilty of anything. You didn't find them breaking in as if they were looking to steal from you. You didn't find them breaking into your house. Then you might have a reason. But you have no reason for how you've treated those that you can treat in, as having power over them. And yet in spite of all these things, in spite of all these crimes that you've been guilty of, in spite of all that this prosecuting attorney Jeremiah has laid out before you, line upon line, aspect of rebellion and sin and apostasy and idolatry and wickedness and injustice and all the rest that I've laid before you, you still look at me and you say, who, me? Not me. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. Truly his anger is turned from me. God won't be angry with us forever. He's a God who is merciful. And they're you know, again, God is merciful, but his mercy is towards those that seek him. His mercy is towards those who take accountability for their crimes and their sins. Here's a nation that won't, that simply won't. And they're trusting in divine mercy. His anger is going to turn away from me. God says, behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. For simply being willfully blind to the reality of your own sin. He says, I will bring you to judgment. Just for that statement, I've not sinned. I mean, you've sinned heartlessly and, and aboundingly. You, you are the chief of sinners beyond anything you can imagine. And yet you contend that you are without sin and you are guiltless. God says, I will bring you to judgment. You'll be put to shame by Egypt, verse 36, as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too you will come away with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. So all the remedies you're after, all the ways you seek to escape accountability, and not face squarely the reality of your crimes against God and against his, his, his covenant, um, is nothing's going to avail. Nothing is going to work. And what is, this whole thing ends in is divorce. This whole matter of the prosecuting attorney coming and bringing the case against a sinning nation is that this covenant relationship is ending in divorce. This marriage that began so promisingly is now going to end in a certificate of divorce. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 1. Uh, again, quoting from 
Deuteronomy chapter 24. That's the background of this, the law concerning divorce. And this is an interesting um, precept that's given in Deuteronomy 24. It's not found in any other nation, this kind of a, 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 a rule or something that governs the matter of divorce. Um, this has to do with a man divorcing his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife. And if you know what that law says in Deuteronomy, well, let's turn it, turn there, Deuteronomy 24. The law says with respect to a wife leaving and being given a certificate of divorce and she goes and marries someone else. It says, when a man takes a wife, 24 and verse 1, and marries her, she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her. And reams of, of a paper has been used to attempt to explain what each of these statements mean. And I don't know that there's really certainty. But he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. So this is legally done. She's no longer his wife. She's sent out of his house. She's given legal protection with the certificate of divorce that he places in her hand. If she goes and she becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and she's a woman with some problems, I guess. One man found indecency in her. Another man starts to hate on her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So she's now left two men's houses. If, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, and so it's not the case that he hated on her, but he just dies, and so he's no longer married to her, then her former husband who sent her away after she has contracted another marriage with another man, whether he dies or hates her and divorces her, he may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Now Jesus explains this in the Gospels in terms of Moses not not commanding divorce. The Jews thought that. Why then does Moses command her to him to divorce his wife? And Jesus says, no, it was for the hardness of your heart. Moses gave the permission to, to, to give a certificate of divorce, but he says from the beginning it was not so. And it was for the hardness of your heart. And so what God seems to be doing in this law and many other of the laws of the book of Deuteronomy and other portions of the Old Testament law was to minimize the evil that divorce will bring um, and give the woman some rights in the law, having a certificate of divorce, and also to make it a solemn thing that he does. He has to think twice about this because if he's angry... And that's what leads him to do it. And she goes and she marries someone else. He's not getting her back again. He cannot come back to her. She cannot come back to him. She's gone and she's gone forever. And he has to reckon with that reality. He's not getting her back. Now turn back to Jeremiah. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him, becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? What's the answer? No, no, he cannot return to her. He's lost her. She's gone. He's not getting her back. Would not that land be greatly polluted? What's the answer? Yes. Deuteronomy says yes. This is the thing that will pollute the land. You played the whore 
with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares Yahweh? Well, the answer to that is a little bit more complicated than the question of divorce and returning or polluting the land. Because in actuality, if the people did repent, yeah, they would return to the Lord. But here's the problem. A lot of people look to take this portion of Jeremiah, this marriage um, illustration, this idea of Israel being the wife of the Lord and um, this matter of marriage and unfaithfulness and divorce, and see it in the light of Hosea's chapter 1 to 3. Remember, Hosea is told to marry a woman of immorality, of uh, the whorish woman Gomer, and to marry her and to have children with her. And um, Then you have in chapter 3, uh, turn to chapter 3 of the book of Hosea, uh, here's a woman that he married. Uh, I believe in chapter 2 he put her away, but now uh, in the final installment here, after this woman who's committed many immoralities, many acts of unfaithfulness, um, and it's to illustrate the reality of Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord. Um, but in chapter 3, in verse 1, that Yahweh says to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, and she's already gone. Gomer's left. She's gone to carry on immoral relations with multitudes of men and still Hosea buys her back and he says to her you must dwell as mine for many days you shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will I also be to you for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince without sacrifice or pillar without ephod or household gods afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come to fear the Lord. There's David again as their king. will come to fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. God in the latter days is going to receive back a people guilty of multiple immoralities, multiple transgressions, multiple instances of unfaithfulness. Again, God's mercy is from everlasting to everlasting, but it's upon those who fear him. It's from those who turn back to him. And here the problem with, uh, with Jeremiah versus Hosea is Hosea is like a couple hundred, 150 years prior. Hosea is before the Assyrian uh, devastation in the north. He's the last prophet to the northern kingdom. There's still hope of divine restoration. When you come to the period of Jeremiah, Hope is gone. Hope is gone. Seventy years of captivity before this people. Temples destroyed. Cities destroyed. Overturning of everything that they um, thought themselves having a special status with God in terms of the covenant. It's going. It's being destroyed. It's being overturned. And you know why? You know why? Because the people won't repent. The people won't turn back to God. They're excusing their sins and their transgressions. They're just continuing to go in the way of unrestrained evil, unrestrained idolatry, unrestrained apostasy. Verse 2 of chapter 3, Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? 
By the wayside you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld. In other words, you know what they're doing here is it's not... It's, it, the picture is that of adultery, but it's, it's idolatry that's really the sin. It's spiritual adultery. It's giving themselves over to idol worship. And the idols that they worship, these were the fertility gods of the nations that they thought was the way in which they're going to have rain and fruitful seasons and abundant harvests and all the rest. And as you've done this with these fertility gods and you've entered in to maybe, maybe temple prostitution, but it's idolatry that's the reigning sin of the people, their apostasy, turning from God and viewing out for themselves these useless, broken cisterns that could hold no water, these pagan rites, these pagan practices, these pagan idolatries. What you've looked for are showers, fruitful seasons. And God says... Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. You will not be penitent. You will not be humbled. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? They're hoping in mercy still. God's going to relent. God says, Behold, you have spoken. That's your words, but your words are vain words. Because you've done all the evil that you could. You've done all the evil that you could. It couldn't get any worse. And this is no hope of healing. There's no hope of restoration. Because there's no inclination to be humble. There's no inclination to take responsibility for your sins. There's no inclination to turn back to God. There's no repentance to be found here. That's Isaiah's first words to the nation. Words that speak of their spiritual adultery. How they've left the God who loved them provided for them, defended them, cared for them. And they turned their backs to him. And he's rendered brokenhearted. And they don't care. They don't care. They just turned in upon themselves. They think that somehow God's mercy will meet them at the end. And they're just kidding themselves. They're just deceiving their own hearts. When you boil it all down, what are the lessons we can take away from this? Well, I hope we take away from this the reality that the worship of anything but the true and living God is absolutely vain, useless, and ridiculous. God alone is to be worshipped, and He alone is to be served. These vain idols that they've run after are just that. They're vanities. They're nothings. They cannot help them in a time of their trouble. They can't hear their prayers. They can't answer their prayers. They've forsaken the fountain of living waters to hew out for themselves these empty, useless cisterns that could hold no water. There's no good that could ever come from, um, no good that could ever come from, uh, from it. 
The worship of these idols that they are seeking is vain. Alliances with other things is also this also vain. Whether it's the nations uh, that they were hoping in, whether it's philosophies we think we can integrate well with Christianity and uh, it'll help us out when we don't need to trust in the Lord fully and His Word uh, with implicit commitment. Um, uh, compromise is something that's going to always be bringing us into great trouble. Compromise with the things of the world or the nations of the world or the perspectives and philosophies of the world. And then denial is unavailing. To be in a mode of just saying it, it ain't so. It's not as bad as you think. We can really work, th- work, work through this into something that's really Christian and something God can approve of and something God can really bless. We're kidding ourselves. It's only in repentance. It's only in returning. It's only in coming back to the Lord with full commitment that we can find cleansing. We can find help. We can find healing. We can find restoration. That's Jeremiah's message. You know, there are things in this book that you see in these early chapters that offer some measure of hope. But yet ultimately, that hope is contingent upon accepting responsibility, owning your sin, repenting of your sin, turning back to God. And these are the things the nation is simply unwilling to do. And ultimately, God comes to the point where he says to Jeremiah, stop praying for them. Stop praying for them. They're beyond repair. They're beyond hope. And the judgment of the Babylonians will ultimately come. And it's in the latter days that God will do a work of restoration. God will bring his David to come, the true king, who will bring true leadership to God's people, bring true restoration to God's people, bring true hope, and bring true repentance. And and we live in that latter day. So for us, don't ever read these passages as if they were telling us, you can't repent, you can't turn. No, these are passages that... Do not refer to those under the umbrella of gospel mercies and gospel liberation and gospel freedom. But even in gospel liberation and gospel freedom, we're called upon to take responsibility for our sins, to humble ourselves before God, to look to his mercy in Christ and look to the blood of Christ to cleanse us from all sin and trust in a God who does cleanse and who does heal and who does give hope to the most hopeless of people. May God be pleased to make those things live for us and real to us let's go to him in prayer Father we're thankful for this time in your word and Lord we can often read the book of Jeremiah and just feel as if we're just being left without hope but we're thankful there is hope in the latter days there is hope in the David that you have provided in Jesus the true king who has ascended the throne of the universe having having redeemed us from our sins having paid the price our transgressions in full and has purged us from all of our guilt guilt and um, has uh, given us healing and giving us cleansing giving us help from on high and giving us the the right and the freedom to live in hope we thank you for the lord jesus we thank you for all that he is to us all that he's done for us and we pray lord that as those who belong to him we would not 
ever be a people like the Israelites of old, simply kidding ourselves and deceiving ourselves and allowing a spirit of stupor to just come over our eyes and to where we justify our own ways and we fail to live lives of open transparency before you. Give us to see our sins and all of their badness, but also to see him who sets us free and to bless you and praise you for such a Savior. We ask you to hear our prayers. Thank you for this Lord's Day. In the midst of all of our sense of inadequacy, you are a mighty God and you manifest your care and goodness and love for your children in the way you condescend to our neediness and meet us in our weakness and need. Dismiss us, we pray, with your blessing and go with us to our homes and make the week before us to be full and fruitful. As we come and we'd ask for these mercies in Jesus' name, amen.